Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show that features stories and poems by local and regional authors, the kinds that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. We record this show in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, located right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, author Carrie Knowles, the 2014 North Carolina Piedmont Laureate for Short Fiction, reads from her forthcoming novel, The Inevitable Past, her novella, A Garden Wall in Provence, and several stories from her short fiction collection called Black Tie Optional. Carrie also writes short pieces for Psychology Today called Shifting Forward that captures her personal perspectives. We start the show with the reading from The Inevitable Past, which is a fictional account of the woman who gave birth to Carrie's father, who Carrie never knew. The Inevitable Past. I am the grandmother you never knew, the one who vanished, the body that was never claimed, the unsolved crime. I never held your father in my arms, only in my heart, but I was there with him every step of his life, as I am with you. I am your blue eyes and your fair skin, a flutter, a thought, a whisper. I use dreams to guide you over the rough spots my life has created for you. My dreams are your dreams. I am part of you. What happened to me the night your father was born has shaped your life. I rest deep in your DNA. I cannot change that. I wish I could. My experiences have made you slow to trust. Shadows make your heart race. I know. But the good of of me is in you as well. You are strong because I was strong. You fight back. You speak your mind. You have courage and are curious. You are smart like your father. You are the best of me. It is time for you to know who I was and who you are because of all that happened and what I need from you to help me. Carrie Knowles was the 2014 North Carolina Piedmont Laureate for Short Fiction and his numerous other accolades. Her short stories have won a number of awards, including the Village Advocate Fiction Contest, the Blumenthal Writers and Readers Series, the North Carolina Writers Network Fiction Syndication, and Glimmer Train's very short fiction competition. And she's been named a finalist in Glimmer Train's competition six times, a finalist in the Doris Betts Fiction Contest, and received an honorable mention in the National Literary Awards. Carrie has written three novels, Lillian's Garden, Ashwin's Rug, and A Garden Wall in Provence a collection of short stories, Black Tie Optional, and a memoir, The Last Childhood, A Family Story of Alzheimer's. Carrie also writes a regular personal perspectives column for Psychology Today called Shifting Forward, 
Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. You can listen to this show for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte Mecklenburg Library's Digital Branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcast. Show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Carrie, welcome to the show. Thank you. So you are my first guest that has shown up on a train. Isn't that fun? I love the trains. My favorite. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so we had the uh, Charlotte Readers Podcast uh, Uber service picking you up this morning. Yeah, right. Yeah. It was great. Good service, by uh, the way. Uh, thank Excellent. You, thank, thank you. Uh, tell me about riding the train and what, what drew you to not just to ride the train to Charlotte to be on the podcast, but riding trains generally. Um, well, I've always liked trains. And then um, when my mother had Alzheimer's, my mother lived in Michigan and my mother-in-law lived in Cincinnati, Ohio, and uh, we used to travel with our three kids from Raleigh to Cincinnati, Raleigh to Michigan uh, by flying because it's a long trip with three kids in the car. And um, one evening we were getting ready to make plans for our holiday trip and uh, the kids said, nope, we're not doing it. We're not flying. We're not flying anymore. And we said, what do you mean you're not flying anymore? And they said, it's too fast, too fast to go from our lives to an Alzheimer's unit. We Mm -hmm. can't do it anymore. And so we started taking the train, and uh, we loved it. We fell in love with it. And uh, for many years, we took the train from Raleigh to Ann Arbor, Michigan, from Raleigh to Cincinnati. We took the train across the country a couple times. Um, We frequently take, if I'm going up to D.C., I always take the train rather than drive. Who would want to drive to D.C.? Come on. (laughs) And so so you're you're, you're journeying, you're journeying on a train, you're you're traveling, and, and in this story that you read, which is going to be a novel that's coming out uh, in, you said, in May, in May, yes, the inevitable past. You're traveling back in time. Yes, right, definitely back in time. Back in time to a time that you don't know for certain, but one that your mind has let you sort of try to foresee. Right. The story of my father's mother, my paternal grandmother. Uh, is one filled with mystery, and um, it starts actually with a train. She was found in 1902. A young woman was found uh, badly beaten and unconscious on a train station platform in Macon, Georgia, and the police picked her up. She had no wedding ring, no sign of a wedding ring, no purse, no identification, no train ticket, and uh, she was pregnant, and... um, Uh, unconscious, never regained consciousness. They took her to the Door of Hope, which was a hospital. uh, It was a home for wayward girls, i.e. unmarried women Mm -hmm, who were pregnant. mm -hmm. And the doctor examined the young woman and discovered that, in fact, she was dying and she was very pregnant. And they made a decision, very quick one, while the woman was dying to try to save the baby. And they did a, a C-section and an emergency in a very fast birth with using um, medical instruments. And the baby was my father. So did you try over time to find out the true story? 
to well, try to find this well, past? Well, in a, in a way I did. Um, I uh, went down to Macon. And the story that I just told was the only story we had from my father. Um, and uh, But he didn't call it the door of hope. He said it was um, a uh, hospital for unwed mothers. And um, so for years I looked for a hospital for unwed mothers and didn't find it. And it was only when I went to Macon, Georgia to do some research for the book that um, I discovered that it was called The Door of Hope. And it was um, actually at the time was sponsored by the Presbyterian Church. And uh, my last name, Knowles, um, is the name of the matron of the uh, Door of Hope. And she sort of quasi-adopted my father. The instrument birth caused my father to be blinded. And so my father was blind and um, an orphan. And uh, the, uh, the matron, Mrs. Knowles, decided that nobody would adopt him. So she kept him at the Door of Hope. So he was raised at the Door of Hope. So this is a story that had to be written, right? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> but it took me a long time to decide that yeah. I could write it. And... Um, to come up with a story that would make sense. One of the interesting things in doing the research is that that date, 19... Actually, I moved the date back to the 1890s. Yeah, you start... We didn't read to this part, but you start in 1893. Right. And, and I was going to ask you, you put her as at 22 years old at that time. Right. Being raised on a farm. But, it, but in that time, the women being almost chattels at that point exactly. in time... They didn't have any property rights. You know, the, the inheritance was going to go to the brothers. Right. She wasn't married. She was a spinster at 22. At 22, yes. What's yeah. she going to do because the brothers would have to take care of her? She didn't have a husband yet, right? Right. And so she's off to the big city. Right. And she went to the big city. That 1893 date is very important for a number of reasons. One is the Remington typewriter was invented. And that shifted office work from men who were... Uh, accountants and scribes and whatever, to women who could run this big black machine. They were not called typists, they were called typewriters. And they had to wear black skirts and white blouses in the offices, so they looked just like the typewriters in a lot of ways. Um, and they couldn't be married, uh, nobody wanted them to be married, and uh, they checked their hands every morning. And I did a lot of research well, about... Why, why, why didn't they want them to be married? Because um, they wanted to have a lot of control over... They didn't want people to get pregnant and leave if they were going to make the investment to have them in their offices. They Long, long before the Pregnancy <clears throat> Against Discrimination Act, yeah. Yeah, or right. Discrim the the, the Discrimination discrim Act Against, against Pregnancy, pregnancy. yeah, yeah, yeah very much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the other reason for 1893, I moved it to Chicago. I wanted a piece of land... Um, I like things to be real in my story. So if I ever mention a street name or a building name, there is that street, there was that building. Um, I wanted a piece of land where two important things had happened uh, that were significant historically. And in Chicago, uh, Grant Park was the opening uh, of the Chicago World Exposition. Mm -hmm. Blah, I can't even say it this morning. And um, the other thing was the Art Institute at the time had not opened as the Art Institute. It initially opened as um, the World Congress Center. It was where they had, in, in conjunction with the World's Fair, 
the Chicago World's Fair, um, they had this congress going on. People from all over the world came to talk about population rising, to talk about this, to talk about that. And one of the key things they had were the suffragettes came and spoke. And it was a big rallying for them. And so Grant Park became an important, I I needed that. I wanted an anchor for the story. Mm -hmm. So how much of your story, is there any, did you find some truths that, uh, you talk about writing as a search for the truth. Did you find some truths here? I found an emotional truth. Okay. You know, why a young woman would leave a farm is an emotional truth. You know, why she would come to the big city. And it was actually the first time that many young women left the farms and came to the big city because that was an option for them that they hadn't had before because there were typewriters and they could have a different career. They could do something besides take care of somebody else's children, scrub the floors, be a cook, or work in a laundry. So it was a huge revolution. It was one of the first ways for women to get into the business world. And so that became really important. And so I, I, I wanted that. I wanted there to be that emotional hook. And so she becomes a typewriter. I, ne- I never thought of a typewriter as a person. I've always thought of it as an object. Right, right. <laughs> which, is, which is long passe, right? Right, exactly. But you know, I was shocked to find out that they were called typewriters. Yeah. So we could spend all episode talking about this book. We can't do that because we, we got know. some, we got no, some other things, things to cover. This sounds like a great book and I'm looking forward to having it come out. But you, you, one of the things we're going to do on the show today is talk about short fiction and about writing in sure. general because uh, you are, you know, you did, did have this honor as the Piedmont Poet Laureate for short fiction. And by the way, how was that? Was that it was good? great fun. I did, uh, it's uh, about a 10-month job. Um, and I did 40 writing workshops in 10 months. Just 40. And I put 3,000 miles on my car. You and, know? And, and, and speaking of trains, again, you did a workshop on a train, I right? did. And that was the most fun. Um, I did a workshop. We went from the Cary train station to Burlington. And there were about 30 people who did it with me. And I lectured on the train um, from, you know, we met early at the train station. And, of course, the train was late, which is fine. I don't, you know, care about late or on time anymore with trains. I just like to be on a train. And um, then I lectured about writing a story about a journey and how do you use a journey? How does it become symbolic? And what is the symbol of a journey? And we talked about, uh, you know, a setting and the, sim- the symbols of a journey. And we took the train from Cary to Burlington, and we got off, and uh, we had lunch in Burlington. The Burlington um, Art- Arts Council provided lunch for us. And then I lectured a little bit more during lunch, and then everybody had one hour, a little bit more than an hour, to write something about a journey. And then on the way back, um, they read their pieces, and I critiqued them on the train. That sounds like a great work. Maybe we can have a Charlotte Rears podcast train. Will you come back? I will. I would love to do that, yeah. (laughs) All right. So let's talk about writing for just a minute. You've got a writing book coming out as well, right? I do. I do. Uh, And that'll be coming out uh, in? March. March. Now... In this writing book, um, you one of the topics you tackle is how to get started. Uh, Why did you decide to include that? And uh, 
Can you give us some insight as to how sure, you get started? Sure, because most people don't know how to get started. They think about, I want to do this, I want to do this, but, oh, if I only had time, if I did that. So I try to get people to understand that the first thing they have to do is they have to say to their mother, their brother, their sister, their lover, I am a writer, to make that declaration so that you're not, you know, you begin to, it's almost like AA, you know. It's like Writers Anonymous or exactly. something. Exactly. It's exactly like Writers Anonymous. <laughs> so I have Anonymous. to come in and have to say, I'm, I'm a writer. My name is Landis Wade. And I am a writer. I am a writer. Yeah, I make do, everybody say do that. Do I have to bow my head when I do that? No, <laughs> no, but you have to say it. You have to be serious about it. Say um, it. Okay. And then you have to find a comfortable place. You have to find your own rhythm. If you're a night person that's the time if you're a day person if you're a morning person that's the time and you also need to uh, find a physically comfortable place you know you can't write and fidget or you can't fidget and write you know if you're always you know the chair isn't right the table height isn't right the lighting is bad you're not going to do anything you're just going to fuss about the lighting the bad table the bad chair the noise the whatever and so you have to find a comfortable place and you have to say when I'm in this place, I'm writing. I'm not doing anything else but writing. Disconnecting email, disconnecting the phone, disconnecting yes, exactly. all these things. Yeah. Yeah. I work at a standing desk, and uh, I love it. And uh, when I'm standing, I'm writing. And when the phone rings and somebody wants to talk to me for whatever, I turn away from my computer and I sit down at my desk because I don't talk on the phone standing by my computer. I make a very clear distinction this is where I write. So if I'm standing there, I'm writing. I'm working. You say something in this uh, little section on getting started about dusting off your writing demons. What do you, oh, mean? What do you yeah. mean by that? You know that little voice in your head that says, why are you doing this? Or your mother's saying, you're not good enough. Or, you know, if you tell about your Uncle Joe being an alcoholic, I'm never going to speak to you again, <laughs> you know. So yeah. your own fears right. and uh, also the voice of your mother. <laughs> Okay, uh, so you you know you get comfortable, you you get rid of your demons, and you sort of got to make a commitment to what you're going to do, right? You do. So tell us about that. You make an easy commitment. You kind of say, "All right, I'm going to do this a half an hour a day. That's it," and you stick with that for a while. And you can, you know, half an hour is not very long. It may seem long the first time you do it, but if you just commit to a half an hour, and also you give yourself the weekend off, you know, it's not like oh my God, I have to do this forever. Um, it's a half an hour a day. That's it. And you start with that. And you also be very specific with yourself. I'm going to work on a, a lot of people want to start by working on a short story because they think that's easy. Actually, ask any writer. Short stories are They're the hard. hardest thing to write. It, yeah. It, it, yeah. If, if I had more time, I would have written you a shorter letter. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, I ask people to start with a vignette, uh, a scene with something. Um, I had a very interesting thing happen the other night, and I've been rolling it around in my mind. I did a, a book club. It was at a restaurant in a private room in the restaurant, um, and it was a great book club. They'd all read the book and everything. But the waiter kept coming in to the book discussion, and he would pick up the book and he'd say, what? is this fiction or nonfiction? What is this? So where I, what, what are you talking about? I mean, and, why, and he came into this Got into thing, the conversation. Four different times. Yeah. And by the time it was over, somebody at the table said, he's a character, isn't he? And I said, he will be. He will be. He yeah. Will be. Okay, so you make this commitment. You find comfortable space. Um, now, one of the things I ask my 
authors to do who come on the show is to read their work aloud before they come on the show. And you got that. You, you mentioned that in your list of things to right. do. Talk about the importance of that. Because um, I ask you, I ask all my students and anyone I work with or anyone who calls me and says, what am I going to do? If you start reading your work aloud, you'll see, you'll be your own worst critic. You'll see when it doesn't work. You'll see when you've made a mistake. You'll also see when you've used the same word three times in four sentences. And when you've written it and you've edited it and you've read it aloud and whatever, then when you go out to read it to someone else after it's finished, it's still a good idea to read it aloud again. It is. Because inflection's important. Cadence yeah. is important. Cadence pace is, is very important. important. Right. Yeah. So, okay. So we got reading it aloud. That's good. Did you talk about the place where you're going to do your work? Uh, you say close your eyes, think about all the things you right. want to write, dream a little. Talk about that. So um, I'm a character-driven writer. I don't make a hard plot with something. I start with the character, starting with this waiter. Um, I have an idea for him. Um, <laughs> the, the waiter, who, the waiter who wants to get in the book club but doesn't want to bring you your uh, drink. The food, right, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, and whenever I turn on my computer, the first thing I ask myself is, what is my character going to do today? And to sort of make every day of writing a bit of a discovery. And if it's not fun for me to write, it's not going to be fun for you to read. If there's not a sense of excitement or discovery in it, it won't be a sense of excitement and discovery for your reader. It'll be boring, flat. Now, this book that's coming out, which is going to be a, a writing guide, you, you, your very first lesson in the book is getting down to the emotional truth of the story. Right. And you say writing fiction is about telling the truth. And I just had an author on that I recorded with who's going to be in, in the same season you are who talked about the fact that fiction needs to be more true than nonfiction. Absolutely. I, absolutely. <laughs> speak, I, I agree. Speak to, speak to that. <laughs> so what I mean by the emotional truth, and I think in the book, the example I use is Thanksgiving dinner. You know, a lot of people, when they start to write, um, particularly if they're lawyers before or engineers yeah, before. Let's pick on the lawyers. Let's yeah. pick on the lawyers. <laughs> you know, it's like um, at 8 o'clock this happened and 8.15 right. that happened at it's 9 o'clock this Very linear thinking. Very so, linear thinking. Yeah. And so if I talk about the Thanksgiving table, you know, everybody in a family makes the assumption we all grew up in the same family. Well, the mm. truth is, no, you didn't. Right. No, you didn't at all. And it's, that's a hard one to come up with. So the emotional truth is um, has to do with what the character you're writing about, what the scene you're writing about, what those characters have brought to that. So if you think about the Thanksgiving table, you know, you eight people, your whole family sitting at the, at the Thanksgiving table, everybody has a completely different truth about what happened at that dinner. And it's under, you could write a very big, long novel about Thanksgiving dinner and who made the dressing, you know? <laughs> I think and there have been some movies made like there that. There have right? been yeah. movies. But yeah. it's looking at what, what is the emotional baggage? What is the emotional charge? What is really going on there? Not it's 8 o'clock this happened, 9 o'clock that happened. And that's when a story becomes interesting. That's when a character becomes full-blown. That's when a story lifts off the page. All right, we've got a couple examples of, of this uh, today, uh, some of your emotional truths, and, and we're doing it with some short fiction pieces that you've written. You wrote um, a collection here called 
black tie optional, which happens to be the story that we're going to feature here first. But just to set the story up before we do that, can you say a little bit about it? Um, This is a story about a young man who has, you could say he's on the autism spectrum or whatever, and he's annoying. And uh, a woman, Jeanette, uh, Kevin is the young man. Um, He's in high school, almost in high school. And Jeanette is uh, single, has no intention of ever having children, finds children to be like the scourge of the earth. And um, her neighbor, Sonny, who is the mother of Kevin, is always asking her to watch Kevin, and she does not like to do that. Okay, so so we're going to start with the lead uh, from the story. This is the beginning. We'll always start at the beginning, and then we're going to... We're break to another section of the uh, of the story, and we're going to do that a couple of times to give the listeners here a flavor for the story. And we're actually going to come to, with the, the, end. En- to the end as well. So let's start yes. with the beginning. Jeanette was not pleased to see a note sticking out from underneath her apartment door. Even before she picked it up, she knew it was from Son- Sonia, who called herself Sonny, and that it was more than likely about Sonia's teenage son. Sonny lived in the apartment down the hall with her nutso hyper son, Kevin. Sonny had never mentioned an ex-husband or, for that matter, that Kevin actually had a father, so Jeanette always figured Sonny was either gay or extremely angry about some one-night stand. In either case, Sonny spent most of her time looking for help with Kevin, and Jeanette did her best not to be available. No, Jeanette said with resolve, no, no, and no. She pulled the note out from under the door with the toe of her shoe. There, just as she had feared, was Sonny's wild, scrawling handwriting galloping across the back of a used envelope. I'm desperate. Have to work late tonight. Could you take Kevin to his concert at school? He needs to be there by 5.30. Blessings, Sonny. All right, so now we've got the setup. Now we're going to go to a little scene here where uh, Jeanette is with Kevin. And uh, this just gives you a, a little flavor for uh, the lack of patience that Jeanette has and a little bit about Kevin. So starting with my mother forgot. My mother forgot to tie this for me, Kevin said, pushing the narrow satin tie toward Jeanette. She usually ties it, then slips it over the shirt collar. So all I have to do is button the shirt, then pull the tie up after I slip the whole mess over my head. But she forgot, and I don't know how to do it. And I've already been to Mr. Marcuso on the first floor. And he told me that he was a postman, not an executive, and that the only tie he ever wore was to his first communion 40 years ago, and that he didn't tie his own tie then, and he couldn't tie this one for me. Now, could you do it? How old are you? Jeanette snapped. Okay, so we got, we got Kevin, who, whose sentences run on a bit, right? He, before he, he pauses does, and before yeah. he takes a breath. Uh, and, but then we're going to get another flavor for uh, uh, how Kevin can can run on a bit. And uh, again, Jeanette doesn't have... Are they in the car now? They're getting into the car You're Catholic, Jeanette asked as she moved down the hallway in the hopes of getting this little job of driving Kevin to school over with quickly. Kevin trailed obediently behind her. Jewish, but my mom says a Catholic school is better for me because the kids aren't as smart. I have this learning thing. It's hard for me to focus. Also, I'm not so good at writing. My mom says I can talk a blue streak, but when I start to try to put words on paper, things get a bit jumbled and backwards. 
I'm in ninth grade, but I'm still trying to pass the eighth grade writing test. Even though I flunked the test last year, they let me go on. I guess they can do what they want at Catholic schools, which is another reason mom says they're better for me than the public schools. If I were in public school, I'd probably spend 10 years in eighth grade. I took the test three times last year, and I flunked it every time. Sister Matthew said she'd make a special test for me. It's not really a test, but a book report. I've already read the book, Animal Farm. I thought I understood it and wrote about the animals, but I guess I flunked that paper, too. Sister Matthews is working with me now after school on Thursdays. She says Animal Farm is an allegory. She got kind of angry that I hadn't figured it out on my own. She says it's really not about the animals, but about politics in the world. I didn't get that, but if Sister Matthews says it's true, I guess it's true. If I don't pass the test by the end of the year, I'm going to have to repeat ninth grade. I really don't want to do that. And then Jeanette says, listen. Right. <laughs> she's like, come on. You know, she's trying to find directions. Where do we go here? What, what turn do we take? And exactly. he's like, well, I'm not sure. I usually ride the bus. I can't figure out. Maybe it's down here. Maybe we turn left here. And the whole time he's continuing to talk. He's got his tie. He wants help tying his tie. Um, and then he leaves his tie in the car. And then we, uh, we come to the end of the story. And, and, and to set this up, she looks at the tie. She's not sure what to do. And then she decides she's going to park her car, get out, and take the tie in. Right. I forgot to give Kevin his, Kevin his tie. Kevin's in the lowest band, Mr. Hunter said, as though this would be news to her, something else she had obviously failed to grasp about Kevin's shortcomings. Yes, I know, she said, holding out the tie. He forgot his tie. The black tie is optional for the lowest group. Only the symphonic band, the top group, has to wear them. Kevin knows that. He loves the clarinet, she said, again offering him the tie. He doesn't care that he's in the lowest group. You're not his mother, are you? No. Lucky you, Mr. Hunter said, taking hold of the other end of the tie in order to pull it free from her hand. Jeanette held tight to the tie, forcing Mr. Hunter to struggle with her for a moment. He can play ten songs in all the scales in the beginning book, she said, a little louder and more defensively than she had intended. Then she let go of the tie, and when she did, Mr. Hunter was thrown off balance and had to take a quick step back in order to keep from falling. I don't know anything about ties, she said, and Kevin's father is a real jerk, so consequently the kid needs a little help in the tie department. It's important that he gets to wear the tie, real important. Sure, Mr. Hunter said, looking first at her, then back at the tie in his hand. I'll give it to him. And tie it for him, she added. He needs someone to tie it for him. And so throughout this story, um, parts you didn't read, Kevin is talking on and on about what band he's in, which happens to be the lowest band, but how he's proud of how he's able to play certain songs, and he, he loves the instrument that he plays, and you get the sense as you're going through it that uh, Jeanette's sort of halfway listening. And yet, in the end, she steps up. She does. Yeah, right. she gets one over, and she understands Kevin, and she, she becomes a champion for him. Mm. Is that an example of an emotional truth? Yes, very yeah. much, yeah. yeah. It's not just that he forgot the tie. It's that her whole emotional attachment to Kevin changes dramatically in the short story. And that's what short stories are about, is that moment when, a, when the main character sees the world differently, sees themselves differently, discovers something. 
Did this idea come to you in a workshop, in a prompt? Or were you thinking about ties one day or kids and playing in bands? I or? just, I don't know. Yeah. You know, yeah. that one just came. I think one of my kids had a friend who was on the spectrum and who just would start talking and I would be like, whoa, turn it off. And uh, I thought about what I was doing, and I think that's where the story came from. But it meant enough to you to use it for the title of your book, right? Actually, the title of my book was going to be Sad Shoes, and my publisher said, no, I like black tie optional. I said, okay, fine. You know, if a publisher wants to publish something, name it. I don't care. Name it. Name it. All right. So, okay. So, listeners, when we come back, we're going to continue exploring uh, short fiction and the emotional truth that's in it with a couple more reads from black tie optional. We're also going to do the writing life segment. We've got a little reading from our garden wall in Provence. And uh, if we have time, we're going to talk about uh, some psychology blogging. So uh, please stay with us. Hey, listeners, I'm here with Wade Foley. He's the owner of Social Grit, a digital marketing agency that helps business owners and brands find and share their unique stories and creative ways through social media. Hey, Wade, I'm curious about your business and how you help your clients. So Social Grit is a marketing agency. We're right here in Charlotte. We help clients with everything from branding and marketing strategies to content creation to managing their daily social media. Hey, yeah, and spoiler alert, uh, you're going to be helping Charlotte Reader's Podcast. I'm really excited about that. Yes, yeah, yeah absolutely. We I'm, are, too. I'm not sure I know how to spell Twitter, so that's going to be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, tell us the kind of businesses you work with. Sure, yeah. So we um, work with clients ranging from solopreneurs and startups um, to nonprofits to national e-commerce companies as well. Solopreneur, is that what I am? Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> okay. Well, you've got some success stories, I understand. Uh, you've done some nonprofit work in the community. Tell, tell us about that. Yeah, so we love helping tell um, stories for nonprofit. We had a nonprofit who had a Giving Tuesday campaign that we created where they're a treatment center and they needed a new van to help transport clients to and from treatment. So we came up with a whole Giving Tuesday campaign to help raise funds to help them get that new van. That's great. You're doing solopreneurs, you're doing nonprofit work, but you also do the e-commerce side too, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so on that side, you know, working with larger, more product-based companies, um, one in particular is an apparel company. And so, you know, they're spending twenty to $30,000 on Facebook ads. And so we're helping manage and tell that story and get them, you know, an eight to nine return on ad spend. Yeah, and, and I'm not quite spending that much. Wait, you, you know that, right? <laughs> not yeah. quite, yeah. <laughs> okay. Maybe one day. Okay, one day. All right. So how can people find you? So our website is socialgritmarketing.com, and they can find everything from there. That's great. Thanks, Wade. All right, thank you. All right, we're back with uh, Carrie Knowles, the uh, 2014 North Carolina Piedmont Laureate in short fiction. Carrie, let's uh, let's dive into a couple more here with the uh, with your collection, Black Tie Optional. You got a you got a little story here that kind of caught my attention. It's called Selling Fish. Talk about Selling Fish. Selling Fish actually comes from a story somebody told me about um, her sister-in-law who had had a near-death experience and came back and you know, told about this experience. So that's very intriguing. And um, so I wrote a story about it. And, you know, what do you do when you come back? And that becomes a question, doesn't it? If you get to come back. Yeah, and the little scene you're going to read is a conversation she's having with her father who's already predeceased her. Right. So this presumably would have happened during this period when she's almost to the other side. Right. Right. Okay, pick it up. 
That's when I saw Daddy. I looked away for a minute from my breathing self lying on that rubber pad to the hum, and there was my Daddy. He looked the same, just like he looked every day of his life when he was alive, even had on his tall rubber boots the ones he always wore at the store because he said he couldn't stand to have his feet wet and cold from shoveling ice onto the fish all day. Grandma was there, too, and Daddy's brother, Eddie. They were both standing with him on the edge of something, standing in a line like they were there to make sure no one could pass them. Daddy was the only one who spoke. The others just stood there. Grandma had her hands out in front of her like she was getting ready to catch one of her grandchildren in her big apron. Uncle Eddie smiled at me and just shook his head. Go back, Daddy called out to me. Don't come any closer. You've got stuff you need to do yet. What do I have to do, Daddy, but sell fish, Miss Ellen says with a laugh that sounds like a question. What is there to do but sell fish? And you usually think of these moments uh, when you hear these stories about you need to go back. There's important things you need to do with your life. Uh, You're going to make a difference in the world. You're going to become someone that makes some change happen, and she's saying, but wait a minute, I just sell fish. Right, that's all I know how to do. And yet, the maybe the point of the story is that, that she did have a place in this world that was important to the people that came to her right. for their fish, right? Right. And they counted on her, because every time they got there, they heard her in her sort of high squeaky voice asking what kind of fish they wanted and so right. forth. Although I don't think of this as being in Raleigh. Why isn't this set at the coast or something? Well, it's set in Raleigh because there was Earp Seafood. Oh, okay, okay. And, uh, you know, where I used to buy fish. Okay, so so is that where the idea came from? Yeah. Okay, all right. I also like that, that, you know, you wouldn't think of, well, that's a life goal. Is that a life goal to sell fish? Right. You know? Okay. It's a little bit different than changing the world. Exactly. And yet, important nonetheless. Yes, very much. All right, so we got, we got this story here. I mean, the title alone is probably enough to uh, to, to be intriguing. Um, give us the title. The title is Searching for Clint Eastwood. And this story, um, now you, you wrote a memoir about Alzheimer's, right? Yes. Okay, so you've had a family history with this, and you explored this topic in great detail in your memoir, but you do it in a different way in this story. Yes. Right? Tell us a little bit about how you're doing it and what's going on before we, before we do this little reading. Um, in this story, the daughter is the uh, primary caretaker for her mother who has Alzheimer's. And her mother believes that she is related to Clint Eastwood. And um, that becomes a big focus of her Alzheimer's life is this belief. And the daughter kind of throws up her hands and said, okay, we're going to go to Carmel and we're going we're gonna to find Clint Eastwood and we're going to settle this once and for all. And she's thinking that she's going to get her mother settled. And then as she takes off in this journey from the East Coast to the West to find Clint Eastwood and find out if her mother's notion that she's related to Clint Eastwood is actually true, she finds out a different truth that she had no idea of. And she's got an aunt that she's going to go visit. Right. Right. In Kentucky. Yeah. And so they're on this journey. And and early in the story, uh, you talk about uh, Clint Eastwood and you say, Mom knocked Floyd Ellington off of the chair he was sitting on in the television room while everyone was watching the 1969 musical Paint Your Wagon, that charming, not-so-wild Gold Rush musical where Clint Eastwood and Lee Marvin share a wife, Jean Seberg, and where Clint Eastwood famously or 
pinned saying. <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> the last time he ever sang right. before he put a gun in his head right. and said, do you feel lucky? Right. right. Make my day. Make my right. day. All right. So let's, let's, you're going to pick it up at, toward the end of the story, right? Towards the end of the story. And she's gone to see her, her only other, her uh, mother's only sister, Aunt Doris. And um, in this, she's discovered in this journey, her mother starts talking about a baby, a baby, a baby. And uh, she says, I'm your baby. And her mother says, no, my baby boy. So Aunt Doris dried her hands. She reached into the pocket of her apron and brought out an old newspaper clipping. There was a tall, lean young man staring out from the picture. His hair was brown, maybe even black, and it was brushed back from his face. Even though the picture was black and white, you had the sense his eyes were steely blue and intense. He could have easily passed for a young Clint Eastwood. I took the picture from her hands. It was the type of photograph you often see in an obituary. It was faded and had a kind of smeary look to it old newspapers for to get over time. But I could still see my mother's face in his. I could see the odd, slightly elongated earlobes attached along the jaw, and the way the skin always felt a little tight over my own cheekbones if I got too much sun. The name under the picture was Bertrand Anderson, and it gave the date of his birth, May 15, 1936, and the date of his death, June 23, 1998, 62. My brother was 62 when he died. There were so many times in my life I had wished for a brother, and now I had one that I'd already lost. It made me feel sad and alone in the world. I saw him once. I near fainted. The way he walked, just like Uncle Cooksey, and the way he held his head to the side as if he was a bit hard of hearing in one ear, just like your mother does. I handed the picture back to her. She took it from my hands and carefully unrolled the curled edges with her fingers, as if by unrolling them she could make the picture bigger, could make Bertrand come to life. Saw him walking down the street in downtown Paducah, big as you please. Thought for a moment he might be looking for me. My name was on those papers, you see. Your mother was only 15, not old enough to sign the papers. So Daddy sent me to sign them and to bring her home. The Andersons, the people who wanted to adopt him, were there. They seemed nice enough. Mr. Anderson was kind of short and wore this black suit with a clean white shirt. I asked him if he was a banker, and he said no. He said he owned a haberdashery. I had never heard that word before and had to ask him twice what he said. His wife was tall and thin and sat straight and quiet in her chair. The woman who ran the place brought the baby into the room and gave him to me. She put him in my arms like he was mine. I could hear your mother crying. She was locked in her room down the hallway. Bertrand was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen, and he smelled like fresh ground flour. My name was on the papers as the mother, and I had to pretend he was mine. I knew I was supposed to do this thing where I said, I give this baby to you. That's what they told me to say. I give this baby to you. Did she know? When Daddy told her I'd done it, she said she was going to kill herself. That's when I took her to see Dr. Simon. And you told him you wanted her to forget you gave her baby away? Aunt Doris slowly shook her head yes. Tears were streaming down her face. She folded up Bertrand's picture and tucked it back into her pocket. I put my arms around her. Do you think she could forget again, she whispered, as though there was something dark and shameful about her wish. 
Yes, I said. I'm sure of it. So that story brings a lot out. Yeah. And so Alzheimer's, serious uh, disease, difficult for families. They say sometimes you should come closer by believing what you're being told by the person who's got the disease. And she couldn't necessarily believe what she was being told until the truth came out. Right, right exactly. Yeah. And and the mother was able to remember enough because it was a long time ago. So you lose your um, short-term memory, but you maintain for a long time your long-term memory. And some very old long-term memories come back at the same time you're losing your short-term memory. Well, let's see what kind of long-term memory you have, because uh, you've been a writer for a long, long, long time. time. Yeah, so we're doing our writing life segment now, and uh, your writing life started when? Um, my writing, my professional writing life started in 1968. Um, I was in college, and I got a job working for WXYZ Radio in Detroit in the promotions department and uh, did promotional writing for them. And then later on in college, I wound up writing for a sports magazine, an outdoor sports magazine, and I paid for my last year and a half or so of college by writing drag car, speedboat, and motorcycle articles for a magazine. And when did you shift to short fiction and novels? Um, I think that initially I wrote a lot of poetry when I was in college, and I wrote some short fiction when I was in college, and um, but I often tell people that writing poetry was the smartest thing I ever did because it taught me, it made me a very good advertising copywriter because I could write great had headlines. To be short. Yeah, it had to be short, <laughs> had to be to the point and create an image, and that's what it did. And titles are important, right? And, and very much so in short fiction. Yes. So talk about that a second. How do you come? Do you come up with the title first, last, oh, in no, between? No, last, agoningly last. <laughs> you know, it's like, what am I going to name this story? And do you look for because I noticed that black tie optional, you know, came in at the very end of the story. Do you right. look? Do you look for something in the story and try to pull those words out? Typically, or you try to find, you try to pull some words out, but you also try to find the truth of the story. So, um, pinhole vision, you know, is is a sort of a an interesting title for a short story because it indicates both a the the uh, physical truth that someone had pinhole vision they had only a couple retinal you know receivers and could see shadows sometimes but it also uh, in the story indicates a very narrow focused sense of the world so just looking through a pinhole and and searching for Clint Eastwood for example could have a double meaning because the mother right. is searching but but her daughter, who always wanted a brother, was searching but didn't know she was searching for the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. They're all searching. They're all searching. Okay, so you talked early in the show about how to get started and different types of routines. So now's my chance to ask you about your routine. <laughs> well, I own, um, I since my bread and butter, you know, what I've done professionally has always been writing, and whether it was commercial writing or writing for newspapers or magazines or whatever, um, it was my job, and that's what I did as a job. So I got up and did it every day because it was the job that I did. Um, and um, for a while, uh, when the children were all at home, even when the children were still at home, I, I bought a small office building 
and in downtown Raleigh. And uh, so I get up every morning and I get dressed and I go to the office and I'm a nine to five or Monday through Friday. So do you write nine to five? Do you do you do other things at your office or? I think writing professionally these days is a far more complicated thing than just sitting down and writing. Mm-hmm. It has to do with promotional work. It has to do with working with a publisher, with editing, with cleaning up a manuscript, with doing uh, uh coming to Charlotte to mm-hmm. do a podcast, right. uh, to do a book club, to uh, do some advertising for your own work, to do your website. Now you're expected to have a website, a, a presence on the internet. Oh, you got to be on Twitter and you Facebook. You got to be on Twitter and, and Facebook. And I had to learn that. I mean, you know, it's like, wow. Um, so it's a much more complicated world than you would imagine it is. And a lot of, so I feel very lucky if I get three two to three hours a day to actually do writing so how has this writing journey shaped your life hum that's an interesting question i think um i'll tell a story uh i had a great professor in college who always started off each semester and he said the difference between a writer and everybody else in the world is this it's very simple a writer somebody who really is a writer could wake up on the first day of the universe with God and watch the first magnificent sunrise and then be magically transported across the world and stand with God again to watch the first magnificent sunset. And a writer would turn to God and say, that was nice, but I would have done it differently. (laughs) So I think writers are curious people. And, uh, you know, I think it's a compulsion in a lot of ways. You know, they're, like I make people say, I am a writer. It's sort of like an AA thing. I think that there is some kind of a compulsion about it. And uh, you're always looking at the world and thinking, what is going on here? What's the real thing that's going on? What's the emotional truth? Mm -hmm. Why is that person angry? Why is this happening? Uh, What is going on here? And so it's that constant searching for what's happening, why? Let me think about this. What's the story? And well, uh, well, so it's it's a lot of curiosity. Speaking of, you know, I would have done that differently. I, I sometimes ask this question: knowing what you know today, given all your experience as a writer, what would you tell your younger writer self that might be helpful that you've learned in the years since? Inherit a lot of money. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> It'd be good. Yeah. No. Um, as, as a writer, Carrie, as a writer. writer. <laughs> um, yeah. When I lecture at yeah. colleges, yeah. and uh, I always tell people yeah. in college that they they should take the writing classes that they can at school, but they should major in something that gives them a skill set that they can write about. And um, I also tell them that I've made a lot of money as a commercial writer. Um, doing reports for companies, writing advertising copy, uh, writing magazine articles, doing whatever, and not so much writing fiction. And it's a wonderful privilege to have the time to be able to write fiction, but I also write other things as well. And I think that, to me, it's all writing. I've had a lot of fun in my life um, traveling and also helping a wide variety of people sort of embrace the art of writing. Since I've written both nonfiction and fiction all my life and often in tandem with each other because I have to keep the money flowing at the same time I'm keeping stories going out the door. 
And um, so I've had wonderful times working with mathematicians, working with engineers, working with um, medical people, and teaching them where's the story, where's the narrative, what are you doing, um, and teaching them how to tell their story and to make their research more acceptable to other people. You know, where's the narrative? And if you teach somebody the narrative and teach them that there is a story, that there's always a main character. I was working with somebody a number of years ago who got stuck writing their doctoral thesis. And he, you know, called me up and said, would I meet with him a couple times? And I said, sure. And so I said, tell me about your doctoral thesis. And he started telling me, he said, I've been working on it for two years. I can't figure out what to do with this. And I said, well, just tell me about your research. And he started talking about um, freshwater streams in the mountains of North Carolina. So I listened and listened, and finally I said, so who's the main character? What's the main character? He said, well, this is, this is nonfiction. I said, what's the main character? Think for a moment. And he stopped, and he said, it's fresh water, isn't it? And I said, yes. And I said, the main character is that thing in which everything goes around it and impacts them, and they impact everything around them. And he said, I understand. And six weeks later, he called me up and said, I finished my dissertation. So, Once he understood that. Yeah. And so I love those moments when I've been able to teach other people about that. And then they can go away and um, sort of reorganize their look at the world. So before we get to your final couple of readings here, you know, I, I do suffer from the fact that I was a lawyer for right. 35 years. Very much a linear thinker. you got to write a brief. you got to get your citations in. Right. you got to do it in order. And so often I think about plot, right? I think about, uh, you know, the, the story itself. And yet... I found that uh, character uh, often, I mean, plot may turn pages sometimes, but character really adds something underneath the story. Do you think about character first, or do you think about the storyline first? I think about the character first, and I wonder what kind of trouble they're going to get into. If your main character doesn't get into trouble, if your main character, you know, I will never be... There has to be a conflict, right? There has to be a conflict, and there has to be a flaw. You know, you can't be perfect. You can't be perfect, and that's why I could never possibly be a character in one of my stories. Because if I were because you're perfect, I am. That's right. You got it. I would be taller, thinner, smarter, richer, and uh, much more charming than I really am in life. And so, you know, that's a hard nut for a lot of people because they are they were raised to if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. Well, if that's the way you think that you're not going to say something that's not nice, well, don't be a writer. You know, I love Anne Lamott. Anne Lamott says, which is my favorite quote from her, um, if you didn't want me to write about you, you should have been nicer to me. (laughs) And So so, the the waiter's going to get a... a, a, The waiter is really in trouble. I got to tell you, this waiter is going to not recognize themselves. But, you know, you have to look for that flaw and you have to find... The other thing is, we are all moving through our lives, hoping to be better the next day. We're all moving towards redemption in a way. We're all trying to get better. You know, you make some mistakes. I mean, that's your life. And you think, oh, I made a mistake. I'm going to try really hard not to make that same mistake again. So that's what your character is doing as well. Okay, we've got a a little read here. Um, You've got a novella, A Garden Wall in Provence, um, beautiful cover somewhere in France, it looks like. There's a river flowing under a bridge. And... You've got a story here that uh, involves some tragedy at the beginning, and you find out early on that there is a, uh, 
a young woman who has suffered um, injury because, what are these winds called anyway? Mistral. The Mistral. Tell us about that. The Mistral is a very mysterious wind. It's a true thing. It sort of comes out of a sunny day. And it's not like, you know, you say, well, winds everywhere. You know, we have winds, we have hurricanes, blah, blah, blah. This is something like I've never experienced before in my life. The Mistral comes. It can be a beautiful, bright, sunny day. And the winds come and they don't stop. They come and they come and they whistle. And they're said to drive people crazy because they're whistling so much. They pull the laundry off of the clotheslines that, you know, and uh, people talk about the Mistral almost as though it's a monster that's come into their lives. And um, it also changes the weather very dramatically. So you've got a couple of characters here. There's uh, Madame Renard. Renault. Renault. Okay, so yeah, I'm I'm not. That's okay. (laughs) And then you get the the young the young girl uh, who lives with her. It's her daughter. It's right? her daughter, right. right. But there's a scene here that you're going to read from the book you told me was prompted or inspired by a true story. You were in France. For we lived in France uh, with our three kids. My husband was on sabbatical, and we lived in Avignon. The story is set in Avignon. In the back of this book, it gives a little bit of the real story, which I thought was kind of fun to do. And um, we lived on the Impasse de l'Alliance, which means a dead end, and... Um, we, uh, it's a nice name for a dead end. Yes, yeah. it is. Impasse de l'Alliance, <laughs> right. Um, so the dead end of the alliance is what it means. And our two older children went to the local French school, and our youngest child was an infant. We had a small washing machine but had no dryer, and I had three kids, and I had a baby. And uh, so the laundromat was at the corner. And What I like about this section I'm going to read is that this is the first time in all the writing I've done in which I took a character from real life and just lifted them completely and put them on the page, and that's the Gypsy Queen. Right, involves gypsies. Okay, take it away. Okay. She did not like being in the laundry when the gypsies were there. The two gypsy men, the old one who always slept in his chair and the young one who drank so much, left right as she came in leaving only the old gypsy woman to stuff all their laundry into the big machines. Madame Renault was glad the men did not stay because the sour smell of the one who drank too much would have been more than she could have handled this morning. As it was, the gypsy woman seemed to be agitated and kept pacing the room from the dryers to the washers, rubbing the large gold locket on the thick gold chain she always wore around her neck. Why are you so afraid? The gypsy suddenly shouted at Madame Renault, rushing towards her as though she wanted to hit her. Madame Renault held on to the arms of the plastic chair. This man you are thinking about, the one who did something that scared you last night, the gypsy woman hissed, is a fool, but he loves you. You are old. You should be happy to take him into your bed. This is none of your business, Madame Renault shouted. Hush, the gypsy woman commanded. I am telling you the truth. He is a kind man, better than the drunken men I have. And besides, your daughter is going to leave you. If you turn your back now, you will be alone. Madame Renaud wanted to cover her ears to the gypsy's words, but her hands held fast to the cold arms of the plastic chair. I don't believe you, Madame Renaud said. What do you know of my daughter? The gypsy woman laughed, throwing her head back so the sound could roll up her throat and fill the room. 
And if I told you that your daughter will stay with you forever and you will suddenly be happy and rich, would you believe me then? Telling people what they want to hear is a trick all gypsies use to make money. The gypsy stopped laughing and approached Madame Raynaud until she was standing so close in front of her, Madame Raynaud could smell the woody scent of a recent campfire on her hair. The gypsy woman held the locket in her closed hand. When she came within inches of Madame Renault's face, she stretched out her hand as though she were offering Madame Renault a piece of chocolate or a precious jewel. But I have not asked you for money, and I am no ordinary gypsy, for I have seen my only child die. I have held him in my arms as his soul left and his body turned to stone. The gypsy woman opened her hand, and as she did, the locket opened. In it was a picture of a young child with the dark, thick curls and odd, pale blue eyes. The small boy's eyes were neither laughing nor sober, but staring out from the locket as though he had been trapped there and was still alive and could see everything there was to see and know. He lives in my heart, and now, with his innocent eyes, I can see what others cannot. Okay, and you had an experience with some gypsies yourself? I did. Yeah. I did. And everyone said to stay away from the gypsies? They huh? did, because they would steal my baby, and I said, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, we don't have much time left, but I want to talk uh, briefly about psychology today. Sure. You, you do a little column. I do. Thank and you. one of the things you wrote about was being 70. Right? I did. Is that because you were 70 when you wrote it? or Yes, because I, I am 70. Okay, and, and I, there's a couple of paragraphs I want you to read from this uh, Starting with 70 is about more than feeling okay. and looking good. 70 is about more than feeling and looking good. 70 is the new outspoken, and it's about time. 70 is a privilege. It is a gift. It's about time we embraced that gift and used our years of making mistakes while doing some things right to be something better, do something bigger, and live larger as though we don't have enough time left to do anything else. You think being 70 is hard? Try being 18. Can you imagine? Have you ever known such chaos, such uncertainty? The stock market is bobbling at every tweet and tariff. Unemployment is up, then it's down. Getting a college education costs more than ever before. And many are left paying off student loans for decades after graduation, making it impossible to get ahead, buy a house, or start a family. There's climate change riding the winds of terrifying hurricanes, tornadoes, and flooding rains. There are whispers of war here, there, everywhere. School shootings and guns. Don't get me started. All right. Well, Carrie, you don't look anywhere close to 70. Thank you. But your words here are well taken. Thank you. When I was looking through some of these columns and I ran across another one, it seems like there's a theme here, although this one involves Jonah and the whale. Right. right. Now, you put, <laughs> you, you say, I was thinking about Jonah one day, and uh, then you wrote this little piece, um, about Jonah, and you start out by talking about the storm and his decision to jump overboard in order to save the ship, and the whale swallows him whole, and you say, and that's where you get stuck. Right. Why do you get stuck? It has something to do with three days, right? It does. It does. Do you want me to read it, yeah, from that? Yeah, I, I do, but I want to know, you. the, the three-day thing, you were surprised that it took three days for him to do what? To pray. It's very <laughs> interesting. The first, you know, I, I was thinking about Jonah, and I, I read the story, and I read it a couple times, and I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. He was in the whale for two full days before he decided to pray and to get out, to ask to get out. And I found that 
the most fascinating thing, I mean, okay, the whale thing, it does stop you cold. I mean, you know, and the idea of being in a sloshy, kind of rather smelly, dark place for two days, three days, whatever, and being able to get out. But the idea that instead of, what would I do? Would I immediately say, okay, get me out of here. I'm, yeah. I'm claustrophobic to begin with. Get me out of here now. Or would I have the courage to think for two days, to wrestle with who I was and what I was going to do when I got out of that whale? And, it, it's, and there was also beauty to it as well because you described the things that weren't present in the belly of the whale. And I'd like you to pick it up there with he didn't have a cell phone with him. He didn't have a cell phone with him. There was no cable news reminding him of melting icebergs, rising oceans, and chaos-producing political decisions. No threat of another war. No new walls to keep us apart or turn away people who just need a safe place to live and raise a family. No shocking terrorist attacks or mass shootings. Just a small, dark room, quiet, calm, a place to be alone and think about what he had done in his life and what he had failed to do to help others, and perhaps what he should do next. If you read the story of Jonah, you will discover that he didn't bother to start praying to get out of the whale's belly until the third day. That's the other thing that stops me. When I first read that he didn't start praying until the third day, I wondered if I were in the same situation would I panic and start praying right away, hoping for a quick deliverance back to my old life? I would like to believe that I would wait like Jonah, that I would use those precious couple days alone to think, perhaps to dream about what it was that I could do next. If I had courage and believed that somehow being swallowed by a whale was a divine intervention, I hope I would take the time I needed to decide just how I should proceed with the rest of my life perhaps to do something that might quell the storm, calm the chaos, and make the world a kinder place in which to live. The story of Jonah intrigues me, I guess, because I believe we all get a chance, even a second chance, if we only take the time we need to get away from the chaos and the rising storms around us, to think about what we might or could do next to save some small piece of the world. It's worth reflecting and praying about on the third day, for sure. Okay, that's a... It's a great way to bring the podcast to, to a close with those uh, hope, hopeful words. Uh, we're in a podcast studio. We're not in the belly of a whale, but we're going we're gonna to wrap this up and get back to the real world. This has been a lot of fun having this conversation. Uh, there are going to be uh, listeners. There's going to be information in the show notes about uh, Carrie's website, how to get access to her. But be on the lookout for uh, The Inevitable Past, which is coming out uh, in May. In May. And then the writing book, has that got a title yet? Uh, or still working on a title? Still right? working on a title. But that'll be out in March. Okay. It'll be out in March, right. Okay. And you can find uh, links to her work uh, on her webpage. Is that right? Yes. Right. Yes. Uh, cjanework.com. Cool. That's great. Hey, I hope we uh, don't have any delays on the train going home today. Yeah. That's okay. That's okay. I've got books with me. You've got and books. And work to do, right? Books and work to do. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for inviting me. It was great. Well, that's it for today. 
another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker, and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. <laughs>